In our accompanying roundtable discussion, we hear views from a group of patients and clinicians, most of whom are based in the UK, on the actions which are required to advance the provision of more patient-centred care. I'm Tessa Richards, and I'm the BMJ's Patient Partnership Editor, and, and I've edited this Spotlight series. And to extend the conversation on from the roundtable, I talk to members of the BMJ's International Patient Advisory Panel and other patient advocates. What follows here are short clips of hour-long conversations with people in the US, Europe, India, Ecuador and Uganda. While the quality of these recordings vary, there's no mistaking the passion of these advocates to improve care for fellow patients, or indeed the scale of the barriers which need to be overcome to make it happen. Dominic Frosch runs the Patient Care Programme at the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation in the US, which is an independent organisation committed to improving the lives of patients. He's recently produced a clear and really useful roadmap of the practical steps that doctors, patients, policymakers and insurers can take to improve care by advancing patient and family engagement in healthcare. That we've been treating the transformation to patient-centered care as a technical problem and one that we can tackle in a sort of piecemeal, bit-by-bit sort of way and, you know, thinking that somehow we're going to accumulate to an ever more shining example, um, when in fact what we're really facing is an adaptive problem. And the distinction between the two being for the technical problem, you can consult the experts and the experts can tell you the answers and then you can proceed to take those answers and implement them. But the adaptive problem, the distinction is, is no one really knows the answer. Um, And we have to kind of work collaboratively to find that answer and and make it reality. And and a lot of what we're talking about, again, is is the roles of the different individuals involved in a healthcare transaction and how they understand what it is that, you know, they should be doing, what is normative, what is expected, what will be socially sanctioned versus not. Um, And that there's a big departure between the traditional role that I think vast majority of actors in healthcare, and and I use actors loosely here, um, don't sort of recognize that departure. As you heard, Dominic believes that despite the wealth of research and evidence on how to advance patient-centered care, the reason we are still not seeing it is because it depends on a fundamental social change, a change in the relationship between health professionals and patients, and that both have got to adapt to new roles. And it's very challenging, and it can't be achieved by any quick technical fixes, although new technologies may, of course, help. That said, he does agree that there are levers we can push which will hasten progress, and that among those, strong leadership embedding that is vital and so may well be legally mandating the provision of patient-centred care, although this is a little more controversial. It's certainly what's happening in accountable care organisations in the US and it's interesting to see how that will change things. What we've observed here in the last five years is that with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, There was a piece of legislation passed there that very explicitly in numerous provisions, um, you know, talks about becoming more patient-centered, more responsive to patients, activating them, engaging them in shared decision-making, and so on. So now it's been turned into essentially kind of a legislative mandate. The, you know, sort of response that was acceptable and fine previously um, no longer works because the legislation has said this is actually an important priority. And yet, you know, where policymakers still have work to do is in how the sort of a broad mandate like that posed by a piece of legislation gets translated into specific regulatory actions um, that move in that right direction. Um, and so there's been certainly there's plenty of discussion among policymakers, regulators here in the United States around measurement. Um, and, you know, they continue bringing to their attention some of the misaligned incentives that get in the way of being more patient centered. Um, so, again, from my point of view, is there is absolutely a role for them. And, and, you know, the very specifics in each system will need to be worked out based on the current state there. 
but I come back to my sort of original argument, which is that in my view, all of these things need to happen. I will admit to sort of being, um, I think, somewhat agnostic about what the best way to advance this is. So um, here in the United States, the state of Massachusetts has mandated um, that, uh, you know, the Centers for Medicare have, I think, mandated um, that there has to be some engagement of patients and families in these organizational decisions um, if you are part of an accountable care organization. Um, and then, on the other hand, others argue that, you know, sort of mandating it through, you know, a, a, a new law or rule is a blunt instrument and perhaps one that would backfire because people then are feeling like they are being forced to do this, um, which may be accompanied by some degree of resentment versus um, finding, you know, through other ways that, in fact, uh, they want to do this because they're, you know, help. They're realizing that this would be very beneficial to the way they go about their own work. So, I, 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 and I think that's the difficulty and the tension in all of this that I don't have the answer to because I would be intellectually dishonest if I claimed they did. Um, as to know exactly where the right balance between all of these things is. A clear sense of the social and cultural adaptation that is needed by both patients and doctors is given by Maggie Breslin and Matt Maleska. Now, they work at the Mayo Clinic. It's a special centre for innovation, and they both have a background in design theory and human interaction. And in the centre, they're developing new tools and technologies to empower patients in a way that will help them to interact on an equal footing with health professionals. You know, they were talking to a group of people who are um, older, highly resourced, very educated group of, of people, and talking to them about if they wanted to participate more in their decision-making with their clinician, and they all said yes. Uh, and But then also talk to them about how likely they were to challenge a physician or to push back against something that a physician said. And they said, you know, to a person that they would never do that because they would be very fearful that um, that the doctor then wouldn't wouldn't provide the best care for them or wouldn't be as interested in in uh, you know going the extra mile or helping to kind of care for them. And this, you know, the the thinking was, well, if this is the truth of a very highly resourced, highly educated group of people, um, then it's extremely unlikely that uh, you know a, um, a less resourced group of people is going to be able to feel that they they can sort of push back against some of this decision making. Well, we recognize that there's a knowledge and skills and language gap, right? So I think what Maggie was sort of speaking to is that you walk in there and in some ways sort of patients already sort of feel um, that it's not equal footing. And we've heard a lot of stories about that. We also are really focused on this recognition that there's a lack of discussion about patients' life and care context. What we've also heard, and maybe it's sort of different country by country, is from a lack of a discussion about financial issues and how those impact a patient's health. So oftentimes, not just, you know, is this service going to be paid for, but if I take this medicine or if I have to make another appointment, I have to take time off of work, a lot of sort of how sort of financial issues play into healthcare decisions, that's, that's very sort of, um, um, sort of removed from a lot of conversations that happen. Um, there's also what we re- recognize is a sense of urgency around some of the decision making that has often been a barrier. Meaning, you know, you're in the you're in the, um, the the physician's office. You have a sort of short amount of time with that clinician. They're expecting you to make a decision just because of some efficiencies that can happen just because you're there. And we feel like that's an, a barrier that a lot of patients have to overcome. Is how do you begin to slow the process down? And there's also we think. What we sort of are sensing is there's a, a suspicion over people refusing treatment or looking for sort of alternative options to their healthcare delivery, and that's sort of a barrier of discussion. So we have this sort of working set, um, and it's really about refining them and testing out um, those barriers going forward for us as well. I think it definitely needs active support and, and interventions um, in order to make it happen because I think otherwise what we will find is – Um, the clinical community will set the idea of what a good patient is and everything will be forced into making patients play that role better. Um, You you find it kind of even now when you look at like checklists that we ask patients to 
um, to think about, you know, and it's very often like, what questions do you have around your medications? Everything really is defined from the clinical side. Here's what we think you should be talking about in your clinical encounter. Think about this more before you kind of come in. Um, and I think that's the trend that will continue to happen if we don't actively uh, begin to develop some interventions and some training and, and some um, ways of helping patients say that this is just what's important to me. And, and, um, and it may or may not fit into the buckets that you normally think of as important things to talk about in your doctor's visit. Now, the view that it's the power imbalance that needs to be tackled if care is to become truly more patient-centred is one that's reinforced by Kristin Lind, who lives in Sweden. She's become a very powerful advocate for patient partnership and increasing patient and carer participation in health care. Her advocacy stems from her own harrowing experience as a parent of a young child with multiple chronic conditions and cognitive and behavioural problems. We talked to her about the difficulties she faced and the help she needed to get through those early years with her son when she was living in Boston. My journey toward advocacy began with many, many years of just being kind of passive, Mm. actually. I was incredibly busy and Gabriel was receiving a lot of services. You know, he had... um, He had a heart condition, so he had two balloon dilations by age three. He had a feeding tube. He had, you know, MRIs. He was receiving PT, OT, and speech um, about seven sessions a week in our home. Um, He had many, many specialists, but but really, I think that for me, um, it just didn't it took me a very long time to understand my role and to see that I was in the driver's seat. Mm. It almost was like an aversion. The idea that I would have to deal with anything medical was just, you know, there was nothing about me scientifically curious. And we lived in Boston, and there's a very strong medical culture there, which I think, you know, leans toward the idea of the of the doctor as expert. And I was told, you know, many times to just, um, how lucky I was to be in a place surrounded by so many expert doctors, the best care in the world. And, and that I just needed to, um, to listen and do what people said. And I, I mean, I was told, and I don't, I don't know, I don't want to be like inflammatory in any of this but I was told not to Google. I was told to just be his mom. And, um, you know, and I think that, that that's still very much the dominant message that people uh, receive. And, and one which I will say I was very happy to comply with. I, I, I was complicit in an unspoken agreement in which I would do whatever anyone told me to do. And therefore I did not have to be ultimately responsible Mm. for anything that happened. Kristen underlines that it was not the health professionals who gave her the confidence to cope and to adopt an active role in managing her son's problem, but it was fellow parents of sick children It was they who really helped her to get out of a rather submissive and passive role and to articulate her worries, her concerns and her beliefs about what was best for her son and to question doctors about the way her son's care was being provided. There were a number of other parents um, who, you know, parents of children with special needs who I, just a couple in particular who knew how to push me just enough you know, I was like uh, I was like a little rabbit in the woods. If you had pushed me too hard, I would have run away, and you'd never have seen me again. But they, there was, you know, there were a couple of people who, who like knew just to say, you know, I'll I'll be with you. You, if you're willing to 
to to dig a little bit deeper and if you're willing to ask a few more questions and I mean for me this was this is where I think it gets kind of complicated and where I think all those cultural issues are my own cultural fears of of what disability meant and my own cultural fears of of illness of um dependence of difference made it difficult for me to um not be in like I was in such a state of terror about my son's future that I really wasn't able to look at what was actually happening I think the message around the power of peer support is one which is repeated several times in this spotlight series and one that needs to be taken very seriously I think Kristen's written a blog about raising a child with complex needs and you can read about it at dergastoolbox.com. At its heart, she suggests, it really comes down to thinking holistically about someone's life, her son's life, not just the medical care. Part of that process meant us getting clearer on what was important to us. That's a, I think that's a big, that's another big sort of push now in person-centered care is figuring out how to help people communicate what matters to them. And prior to that, you know, I was talking about this kind of complicit agreement that we had that like we would do anything and everything that we were told, even though that meant that our home life was just, you know, overly full with doctor's appointments and treatments and we just really couldn't juggle it. And and there, I think that I got to a place of confidence where I could say, you know, this is what matters to us as a family. We, we care about inclusion, but not height. <laughs> we care about, you know, we really made hard choices. Um, we had to make choices about, um, for example... Well, that's, I mean, that was a really specific one. We, we, we got him off certain medications, growth hormone therapy, for example, because there wasn't a lot of evidence um, for his condition that it was effective. And in fact, I felt like suddenly I was a medical expert in his very rare syndrome and that it wasn't a good option for us. And, and we decided to let go and of it and that you know that was like ten thousand dollars a month in medication not not that we were paying for but that our health care insurance was paying for and I mean that's just one example but I think it also led to me being able to to really speak openly with doctors and say you know I need you to help me um manage this better do we really need to come back in four months or can we come back in six months? Can we come back in eight months? What should I be looking for? You know, if I come back, if I promise that I'll come back, if X, Y, or Z happens, or to be in touch with you, is it okay if we wait until after a vacation? Or can we wait until we're in for, the, for this other specialist visit? You know, it was about incorporating medical model, evolving it into a whole life, into a developmental model and a family model. Corinne Jansen, who I've also spoke to, has spent years listening to patients. Listening to patients is part of medicine, is part of healthcare. How can you treat persons without listening to them and without knowing the story of the patient? He can't treat because he don't know where to start. He can only take some blood or an MRI, but that's not a, the health story. I try to give inspiration sessions, workshops uh, about the importance of it. And I see every time physicians are willing, but they don't know how. And I try to teach them what the possibility is for, for a consult for 10 minutes. 10 minutes looks very short, but if you are able to put those 10 minutes in, in a right way, the story, questions and then the diagnose we can do a lot in 10 minutes Kareen was appointed as the first chief listening officer at Radboud University Medical Center in Nijmegen in the Netherlands her role was to spend hours encouraging patients to talk about 
what mattered to them in order to really understand their needs. It's interesting, though, because her view is that it's perfectly possible to get this information within the confines of the usual 10-minute consultation if, and it's a big if, doctors acquire the skill to listen to patients and, and this is important too, patients themselves understand how important it is to come to the consultation well-prepared and able to tell your story concisely. Well, I think the most important thing in patient-physician um, communication is that most healthcare workers think they knew the patient. They know what the patient wants. But in reality, the patient shared information differently um, with me than with healthcare workers. Mm. Um, and the question I ask is why? Well, they think the physician um, don't have enough time and the physician finds it very difficult to ask the right questions when it comes to care because they are focused and they studied about the cure part. But patients are visiting their doctor sometimes because the doctor asked them to join them because it's three months ago or I would like to see you to, to, to see how you are. But patients do not prepare always on what they expect from the physician. So when you are going to a physician and a physician is taking care of your cure, but not looking at you as a person, as a human being, there is a story missing. We can learn physicians to listen better to patients. But on the other hand, we need to learn patients to prepare better and to let them uh, know how their story must look like so a physician will listen for two minutes. We will have a pilot to teach patients to share their stories in two minutes because that is really a tough thing. If you're chronically ill you have a story of maybe a day. But we need the most important stuff so a physician can help you further on your way of quality of life. And I think that is a challenge. And Lucien and I um, think we can, but for now we are not sure if we will manage because um, the story must be a good narrative story about your medicine life. We know people from, from all kinds of research that people need two or three minutes to share their story, but the story have to be uh, so much with good content that the physician can um, pick up that story to create a new diagnose or to give you new pills or just be a good listener. Um, so I never teach patients to share their story. They share their story with me, but for one and a half to two hours. So now we have to comprehend that to two minutes. Um, and that will be our, my next project. So far, the people we've been speaking to live in high-income countries. And although the health systems they interact with vary appreciably, obviously, they have in common the feature that they are well-resourced and are, therefore, in theory at least, able to provide good quality care tailored to people's needs and priorities. But in countries, and of course it's not only poor countries, where there is no universal health coverage and billions struggle to get access to even basic care, it can be argued that the concept of patient-centred care might be deemed a sort of unaffordable luxury. But interestingly, the view of the patient advocates we speak to um, is that it's really among those who are most disadvantaged economically and in fact in respect to illness too, that the most effective advocacy can stem. And the call from patients and civil society to advance patients' collective as well as individual rights is strongest. First, we talked to Dr. Jonas Gonseth, chief executive of a large regional hospital in Guayaquil in Ecuador, and it serves about 3 million people. In 2012, just before he was invited to take over the running of the hospital, 
It became the subject of a major national scandal. Its poor governance, endemic corruption and poor patient care really hit the headlines. There were public demonstrations in the streets about the lack of dignity and compassion shown towards patients. And there was extensive media coverage of the hospital's many failures. This is a hospital that was or is intended to be the, the reference hospital for specialities for a population of 3 million um, citizens. Two years ago, three years ago, this hospital was an example of corruption, lack of governance. Indeed, it was a political issue. Even the president was very frequently asked by journalists and in a very conflicting way about the poor situation of the hospital and how they can't stand about or speak about citizens' revolution having a hospital in these conditions. Edwig Gonset told us that his plans to reform the hospital were steered right from the start by the views of the patients and the local community, and he invited these people to come in and set out their priorities for change. He talked to us about the need to create space for their testimonies and the importance of fully acknowledging the problems that they identified. And he said also that by embedding their participation as routine in all areas of the hospital, it had facilitated a mutual learning process. So it helped the community understand the problems that the managers and that the hospital faced in effecting the changes that were needed. Depending on the profile, some of those groups have been more involved in, um, for example, uh, promotion of patient safety uh, problems as hygiene of, or patient identification so that they, they are now absolutely relevant. Even asking the, the, the healthcare professionals when they see that, that that's not happening. I can say with you that we have been, very recently we have intervened intensive uh, care unit because we have had some problems regarding some work is introducing food to the, into the intensive care unit, which is logically not absolutely not correct. Um, even we have had some infection related to that situation. And the beginning of understanding why was happening that has been by the testimony of the, of the patients. And they have been very directly involved in saying to other patients and to the other families, or to the, the, the family of the patients which are in the intensive care unit, stop introducing food into the intensive care unit because that is a danger for our patients. So they're, they're really like protecting this patient safety components. But it's not only about those kind of uh, approach. It's only also, for example, it was clear and it has been very, very hard and it's very common in, in developing countries, um, corruption in the hospital, in management of the economical resources of the hospital. So we have established a group which uh, is for budget control, in which, uh, well, they inform the management level, the executive committee, uh, and even in this kind of, in, of uh, of uh, working groups, there is a patient which is uh, which takes part in, in the discussions. So everything somehow is is open to discussion with the community of with representatives of the community. I can say that uh, we have many professionals that uh, are enthusiastic about the approach. Some maintain their reluctancy about it, but finally, it's so evident a change that no one can deny that the situation in a very short period has changed and has changed for, for better. The example of this hospital in Guayaquil um, has shown how important it's been to have the extensive involvement of patients and volunteers from the local community throughout the hospital and to give them a, an oversight role in clinical and managerial decisions. And it seems to be the thing that's been really pivotal to transforming the hospital, which now, 
two and a half years on, is flagged nationally and indeed by the World Health Organization as an example for other countries to consider following in their quest to improve patient-centered care. There are hospitals in the, the world which this disaster situation. So my experience works for those kind of hospitals and the message is you can make a change. A very relevant factor that will help make sustainable the process is social and patient participation. Why? Because for me it was very clear so in the news in 2012 that if I wait for the president or the minister coming to the hospital, I will have the same situation in one, two months that I saw in those news, people crying. Obviously, Ecuador, which has seen a popular movement to enhance civil society participation in all public affairs, again, to combat corruption and improve governance, it's just a single country example. But the active engagement of civil society in pushing for patients' rights to access affordable health care of acceptable quality has been long-standing in India. And Rakal Gaitonde tells us about this and the work of the People's Health Movement. Needs to be brought in, brought into focus that even today, uh, roughly 70% of all outpatient visits take place in the private sector. And uh, this uh, includes inpatient services uh, the public sector uh, takes care of around 40% and the private sector is around 60%. So, so uh, to, to start with, uh, while many of the initiatives of the government have focused on the public system, public health system, the, the, uh, the way in which people actually approach the care is still largely in the private sector. And I think this is important uh, as a contextual point. Because it's the private sector, not the public health sector, which is dominant in India, and provision differs from state to state, patients seek care from a very wide range of informal providers, and the cost of seeking care can be very high, especially if they require inpatient care. Raquel cited one study to me when we talked, which found that around 40% of people who get inpatient care as a result of paying for it, then get pushed below the poverty line. Even today, um, a number of, uh, a very significant proportion of the, uh, of the community, of the population, and especially in rural, uh, in rural uh, India, uh, are uh, still uh, lacking in basic access to uh, uh, even primary health care. Uh, this has actually led the government uh, in 2005 to launch the National Rural Health Mission. Uh, the government has since then made, uh, I think, a very commendable uh, series of, uh, you know, uh, yearly annual uh, sort of uh, uh, programs and plans. Uh, while there continues to be some concern that the government is not putting in enough money, I think that uh, we have to say that there has been a sea change in the face of uh, health system infrastructure these have, I think, led to very uh, significant opportunities uh, for the country to actually tackle and, uh, you know, uh, meet head-on the challenges uh, of uh, providing uh, patient-centered care uh, to uh, all the citizens of India. Uh, more recently, uh, since 2012-2013, there has been an act, uh, there has been uh, increasing recognition of the fact that urban India too is uh, suffering from very similar uh, issues, in fact, than rural India, uh, uh, and especially people living in, in slums and informal settle, settlements and in the peripheral areas of, uh, you know, urban, uh, urban conglomerations uh, do and uh, do suffer the same issues. And the National Urban Health Mission has been recently launched along the sort of broad uh, contours of the National Rural Health Mission. So I think the government of India has taken some very significant um, steps, uh, or at least, shall we say, provided a lot of policy space, uh, or at least discussion space, uh, to to actually tackle uh, these issues. As the national government of India rolls out its strategy to tackle health inequalities in both rural and urban India, reformers want to go further and enshrine the right to health in the country's constitution. In low and middle income countries, and I'm sure in other settings too. Uh, if you start from the right to health, 
that perforce includes a right to health care as well as the social determinants of health and to me then patient rights as such or a patient centered health system uh, has to be sensitive to both the access and availability and rationality of care per se but also to the larger uh, you know situation or the context in which people live and it which includes then the larger social determinants of health and research for health and health systems you know uh, patients groups are you know obviously leading uh, the struggle in all of these uh, you know uh, broad areas uh, uh, the government is has taken some significant steps in terms of increasing accessibility and availability but it, uh, it remains patient groups or victim groups and groups who are supporting these groups who have actually you know moved the uh, you know the, the envelope much further than just access and availability to include quality issues uh, social determinants of health and research the right to compensation of for people whose health is damaged through occupational injury has also been championed in india adrakal underlines and illustrates this with reference to patient lobby groups seeking compensation um a group he flags is gemstone cutters who get silicosis and he also mentions the bhopal disaster some of you will remember this is this occurred 30 years ago when a union carbide pesticide plant in bhopal released a massive cloud of methyl isocyanate gas and it's widely regarded as the world's worst industrial accident now what the sambhavana trust and the chingari trust who have been uh, very active in the support of the uh, bhopal movement have actually done is not only struggle the le- for the legal battle in terms of uh, you know rehabilitation and compensation but have actually pushed the public health system to recognize the specific issues that victims face faced and continue to face they talk about more relevant research being done and they are at the forefront of actually developing simple relevant models for rehabilitation for example so we see here that public groups that ngos that civil society groups uh, supporting patient groups victim groups have actually pushed the uh, envelope in 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 terms of uh, you know going beyond issues of access and availability to quality to the broader determinants of health and to actually looking at relevant research thereby challenging the health system to respond to what are extremely inspiring and effective alternatives that's been a long running fight for compensation to the victims which number many thousands and their successful campaign has prefigured others uh, silicosis is one of those conditions that uh, is 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 off the radar of most uh, public health systems and most uh, you know occupational health or environmental health groups but there are uh, huge swaths large numbers of people whom like i said are involved in either gem uh, you know stone cutting uh, mining and so on in a significant large areas of uh, uh, gujarat rajasthan and madhya pradesh which is broadly central and western india now uh, very early on the uh, uh, an ngo uh, called shilpi kendra did the first study in fact uh, where they systematically documented the prevalence of silicosis at the community level now this led for to two things one getting uh, silicosis victims together uh, forming the silicosis pedit sang which is basically the, uh, the affected silicosis affected uh, you know people's association which led to the national human rights commission in india actually taking cognizance of the problem and leading to a public interest litigation which actually set in motion a large number of diagnostic and uh, uh, compensatory mechanisms that governments are now being uh, encouraged and will literally you know forced to do uh, a number of uh, uh, you know organizations like uh, prasar that is based in rajasthan or the people's training and research center which is based in baroda in gujarat have all supported victims groups have have really pushed this whole agenda forward 
uh, and are a prime example where victims groups, where patients groups, supported with civil society groups, have actually engaged with public systems to uh, encourage public systems, to force public systems to respond in, uh, you know, constructive ways to their needs. Mental health particularly in developing countries where access to psychiatric care is often very limited, is another sphere where patient advocates have successfully improved care and begun to reduce the stigma, which has long exacerbated the already considerable burden of illness that patients face. As we listen to Robina Alambua and Daniel Iga Boesigwa, who are mental health advocates in Uganda, It's very evident how much patient advocacy is needed in Africa, and of course not only in Africa, to ensure that people get access to effective treatment and have full employment rights. And they're also to be given the opportunity to fully participate in political and public life. In the 80s, there were no rights, and so you just had to obey what the doctors said, and that was that. Uh, The mental hospital, why I disliked it, they didn't allow... Uh, my brothers to stay there to care for me or any of my relatives. They cut off all the social network. They told my my parents to go away and they said they can care for me. And uh, so I was in a strange place, strange people. And unfortunately, they were combining uh, children with adults. So uh, the environment was very unconducive. So I, I of course, I, I devised means of escaping. Of course, when I escaped, I was uh, there was the in our country, and I was not I, I had no idea, identity, so I, I was almost killed by soldiers. But uh, put in a police cell for over uh, three weeks, um, trying to struggle for my identification. So that one also calls uh, security agencies to know that uh, people with psychosocial disability or mental health challenges do exist and they need to be taken to hospital rather than being put into the cell. In school, I was also a very bright, I am, and I was a very bright person. So, I was doing so well in school, but at some time, my performance dropped so badly. However, the teachers could not connect that I had social problems, that I, I had mental health problems. So I went through it, just struggling, then went to university, struggling, but without information, I could not understand myself. People around me were not understanding me, that, I, that those were mental health challenges. They would check other diseases, they would not discover anything, everything. They would check my blood, everything was negative, and yet I was distressed, I was losing weight, I, I was... Until the crisis came when I was at the universe, where I attempted suicide. I was now so depressed and I, I attempted suicide. But thank God that somehow I escaped that suicide. <laughs> I, I escaped the details maybe in a story behind come. I somehow escaped by just my Christian value after I had prepared everything and ready to kill myself. All those years since my adolescence, my adolescent life, up the time through university and until I married, I, ha- I had not seen a mental health service provider because no one identified me by that time that I had mental health problems. People were just like, I don't understand this one. I was diagnosed after, when I got uh, into a crisis after the delivery of my first born. That's when the first time, because I was in a big crisis, that's when people around me realized I was breaking things, I was shouting and doing all things, as you know. That's when I was taken now to an, the first time to be taken to a mental health hospital. And then I was admitted. There another right. Now I've mentioned about a right to information that is not given to families that are affected and to the community that they can arrest maybe be able to arrest their problem before crisis, a right to information. Another right that I see which was uh, was violated is when I was taken to a mental health hospital, by that time, there was no provision for a mother who has a child. We were all being mixed up. 
in a uh, in the in the room with other people. Now I had a baby. So when I look at such a situation and my husband looks at such a situation and said, no, the baby is unsafe. So the baby has to be taken back to uh, to home, which was a distance away. As you've heard, the experiences of care for people with psychosocial disabilities in Uganda, even in recent decades, have been characterised by lack of support, lack of autonomy and lack of recognition. But things are beginning to change as patients group and mobilise to take more control of their health and push for better care for fellow patients. Rabina is now president of the Pan-African Network of People with Psychosocial Disabilities. And here she's using her experience to help change the image of people with mental health problems in their own mind and, most importantly, in the communities where they live. So we, we, we wanted to come out because, we, I mean, I personally wanted to come out because I realized that, you know, as much as I suffered from this problem, but I, was, I, I, I had very good family support. But when I come out like that and I share people with those who are caring for their loved ones, families will get encouraged to support their members. Then, also to show that even when we have had that challenge, we still have potential, we have talent, we have gifts, and we can still use our skills to, be, to make a big contribution to our community. We have a, a peer support group. We believe that uh, we are a resource which has to be tapped. And then, too, as Robin talked about, is that uh, we give hope that there is, there is life after mental health institution, that uh, somebody can uh, achieve uh, the best uh, on equal basis with others. Somebody can be employed like I'm um, benefitly employed. Somebody can foster a family uh, and be responsible. And somebody can excel in many different areas uh, as uh, other people do. So um, those peer support groups are there, and it is on inception, it is the pioneer group. Of course, we finding a lot of resistance from the psychiatrists themselves. We have got believe that uh, uh, we, we would need uh, uh, peer support and be in the, the recovery team. But with time, they are buying the idea, and uh, once this is a success story, we shall share it with others and encourage others. We are advo- our advocates, mainly we are advocating for our own voice. Because we have realized that, okay, organizations, we have different organizations of, that, we, that try to do work among people with mental illness, but they are not user-led. But the one Daniel has told you, at Sons Uganda, is the fact of its kind. Only users leading themselves, speaking for themselves doing things for themselves, to reduce the stigma among the people that we cannot do it. And then something I wanted also to talk about where I, I have hope is that uh, we have been doing advocacy. We can encourage service providers to take the mental health service users as experts of their own lives. We know much about ourselves, so they can more listen to us and respond to what we, we, we give out and how we want to be treated or managed. And we are making at least some steps to realize that in the past, uh, even the Ministry of Health would not consult us. But these days, every meeting that which concerns mental health, we find that we are being invited to represent other mental health service users, and they give us a voice. They say we have to hear from the service users. What are you saying about mm. this? Sometimes it has taken aggression, it's been very aggressive <laughs> sometimes to enter certain meetings when we've been left out. We say, we, we, you called this meeting, but you left us out, and that you are going to talk about us, so we have come. <laughs> nothing, you can't talk about us when we are not there, nothing about us without us. So we feel that there is hope that things are going to change and we are being consulted and there is hope that many things are going to change. And then communities, because we are not only 
doing advocacy at policy level, but also in the communities we are beginning to be invited. Now, uh, for example, for me, I've had now even uh, like churches, congregations, schools, some institutions on, and the uh, organizations, NGOs and CBOs in some communities inviting us to talk about mental health. In the past, they would invite only uh, people from health, yeah? maybe medical officers, psychiatric officers, but now they invite us, the users of the mental health services, to speak about mental health and to share our stories. These individual stories represent just obviously a small snapshot of what is happening around the world to try and advance patient-centred care, from small changes that can help individual patients to large-scale advocacy movements to advance patients' rights at national level. It's an ongoing struggle, and as Dominic Frosch emphasised at the beginning, the social changes that are needed here are massive and they're revolutionary and they'll take time to implement but we should not doubt the commitment of patients to advancing this revolution. Now, here's for a final word from Dominic. Perhaps it's too philosophical, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, the one thing I, I sort of find myself coming back to again and again whenever I get frustrated about the, you know, seemingly slow pace of change, um, you know, and despite my being more optimistic than ever, there's still, um, you know, plenty of room for frustration. Um, but I'm sort of reminded of, you know, what we have learned from the history of science around, you know, how paradigms shift. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I, I sort of take the work of Thomas Kuhn and I generalize it beyond just how scientific fields change to also, you know, how social activities change. And, you know, in the case of medicine, we've arguably got a sort of combination of scientific change and, and, and social and social interaction between people. Um, and they, these things just change slowly. They just do, and it takes a long time. But I, I think we've gotten further than we've ever been, and we certainly feel the sense that there's more momentum behind this than there ever has.